1: I'm Ray. I'm Marcus. And we're here to talk to you about Podcorn, who are a great new digital ad agency that we just started working with here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast.
2: If you're a podcaster and you're looking to monetize what you're doing, this might be the platform you want to consider. We looked at it after getting an email from somebody at Podcorn. We spoke to Todd at Podcorn. who's a
1: great guy who was really helpful in explaining how it all
2: works to us. And we signed up right away and immediately started putting the proposals together, which by the way, the proposals are so easy to put together. Even we could do it. (laughs) Seriously, if we can do it, you can do it. Listen,
1: go to Podcorn.com And check them out. I think you're going to like what you see there. There's ways of uh, integrating into your podcast all different kind of levels of involvement. It's really up to you to choose the businesses that you want to be involved with with your podcast when you work with Podcorn.
2: You never give up any rights to your podcast by signing up with Podcorn. They support you in every step of the way. They ensure that you're protected, compensated for the work that you do, which means you make money for your work.
1: And the marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when they monetize. That's important to people. You want to see what we're talking about? Go to their website. It's podcorn.com/slash podcasters. We just think you guys should know that Podcorn is sponsoring this announcement, but it doesn't mean we don't really love them and like working with them so
2: far. So check them out. Because it's time to monetize. <laughs> This is The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Marcus in the Darkest, and alongside my co-host, Ray Kube we're going to continue and wrap up our conversation with Rough House Rough Nation founder, Chris Schwartz. He is a visionary, and he is here not only to share stories, maybe break some news, but he is also here to talk about his book, Rough House from the Streets of Philly to the Top of the 90s Hip Hop Charts, and he puts a lot of the hip hop scene from the 80s and 90s into perspective. So without further ado, let's continue our conversation. Conversation with Chris Schwartz.
1: And the other one was that you and Ms. Hill have become even closer over the years since you worked together and that you still stay close in and touch. And I well, I'm, that I'm was representing cool.
3: her right
2: now. I love Lauren well, Hill. Right. She's a little, genius. I'm
3: right in the middle of putting together a new record deal
2: for her. She's well, a genius. There
1: you go. Scoop on the imbalance history of rock yeah, and actually, roll. Actually, I not haven't really talked
3: about from. that on a, and anyway, I had to ask, though. I like the cough button here. What does that mean? You, when you, if you, I'm you I'm have to cough, to get yeah. A cough. You hit it. Hit it. And now you're... And now we there can you go. It and see
2: yeah
3: go. Do I have to go back on?
2: No, no. you're mean, on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It just, just gives you a little... I just, um,
3: it's so bizarre to see a button that says cough. You know, well, you like, know, what
1: <laughs> happens is you push it mm-hmm. and a man puts his fingers out from underneath the counter and takes your, uh, you know, turn your head mm-hmm. and cough. Oh, yeah, the, that's nice. <laughs> cool hand, Luke. I'm just getting my mind right, blown. I left got and right I, here. I know these I, I these like, are crazy. All my notes are out the window. I
2: know, and I'm trying to follow along. But you know, you're talking about the '80s and uh, the '90s with Cypress Hill and uh, and uh, the Fugees, which I did not know their name was changed from the Refugees to the Fugees. Oh, no, so that was, it was really actually, cool. There, you ready, want to hear something funny? Yeah.
3: All right. I think was there was, a, there was a group call. You remember Translator? Yes. Sure.
2: Everywhere that I'm not. You're everywhere that I'm not. Yeah, oh, so, my God. You really, so, no dude, no. I have that on vinyl at home. Right, but, but That's how cheesy.
3: And here's the thing, and I hate to say this because I, I, I don't like making fun of people or anything like that. But So now it's 1993, 94. Who gives a fuck about Translator, right?
2: 80s alternative, nobody.
3: Nobody gives a fuck about Translator. Yet, the Fuji's name was the Rap Translator, spelled differently. Yeah. Right? You know what we were told? And this is the really fucked up part. is that I think one of the guys from Translator worked at Sony Music. Oh. Uh, right? uh, here's what we were told we can't use the name Rap Translator and it's not because Translator really cares it's just that they're getting back together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was like
3: I was like but are you fucking you know, so with it, like, like it made it me think like you well, know the you Empire know. Rock Club and the guys yeah. with their bellies hanging over their uh, spandex pants you know what Holy like, cow. <laughs> well it worked out pretty well for did. the Fuji's though. I know but so then it became uh, it was the Rap <laughs> Translators to the Translator crew to the refugee camp to mm-hmm. the refugees mm-hmm. by the time it, it was like there was like 20 <laughs> names and it became the fugees which was <laughs> cool except that they, it's one
1: of the hardest things to do yeah. for for musicians to name the band you the know? right name historically, the right name's huge the things people go through it's almost as bad as naming a podcast yeah i you know what <laughs> uh, you know
3: it's funny i i have a a merchandising company that i'm doing with a guy who's one of the biggest screen printers in the country and we're doing all iconic hip-hop iconography oh. And I can't come up with a name for this company for shit. I, I just like I, come tried. To you. I tried. It'll come to you. I tried. I can't do it. You're gonna yeah. wake
2: up in the middle of the night and be like, "That's the fucking name." You yeah. launch or You'll be in yeah. the shower, and yeah. that'll be the name. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is you talked about the Fuji's and Whitecliffs, uh, Haitian background, but the Caribbean music influence as well. And you talked about your visit to Haiti. And I don't think most Americans realize what real fucking poverty is around the they world. Have no idea. Of People the real shit world. In holes in the ground. Like Rivers they go to the bathroom. They, and, they yeah. have
3: no idea.
2: I mean it's awful I
3: have to tell you something the first time I went down there I was like and this is before the earthquake this is right. when Haiti mm. was the if you went online who was the poorest country in the world Haiti right right and I just saw things that just like and I, I was thinking, I can't believe that in the modern world, there a place like this exists. It didn't make any sense. It makes you know, no but, sense. But when you start to realize the history of the country and the political part of it, right. it's because the politicians will not allow the country to thrive. Marriott, Hilton, and whoever else, two other big hotel companies, got together and said, let's put in four big hotels down in Haiti. Right. And create this thing. The government tried to extort so much. They see they tr- they try uh-huh. and extort. They don't make it worth anybody's while the to go down. Papa Papadoc do
2: and that. all of that. Yeah. The yeah. Duvaliers. And, and,
3: and that's the whole thing. They just make it impossible yeah. to yeah. make anything happen. And I got to tell you, Mickey, right, sweet Mickey, who mm-hmm. became he was a carnival musician who became mm. the president of Haiti, right? He's probably the first guy who maybe had the right ideas and everything, mm-hmm. but still, there's just I think there's like there's a lack of political infrastructure with the right attitude and the right ideas is pull it off because, as you remember, post-earthquake, they got all this funding and everything. Mm-hmm. But still, right. you had,
1: It went still to
2: all the politicians. It, that went yeah. right. to pay off. And, you got to use it right. Yeah. But, no, very interesting. And then you went to... You spent some time at GoldenEye. Yeah. Will you describe GoldenEye? I'm a huge James Bond guy. I've been to Jamaica and I've seen where some of uh, Dr. No was filmed yeah. and areas like that. But what's the GoldenEye place
3: Goldeneye like? GoldenEye is Ian Fleming, who is the creator of... James Bond and, you know, crazy things, the Broccoli's, who did uh, Chi Chi Bang Bang, Albert Broccoli, and they built Pinewood Studios. They had the option on GoldenEye, and the day the option, it was going to run out at 12 o'clock that night, they got a deal from, it It was United Artists gave them a deal Mm -hmm. for James Bond, the last minute. That's crazy. But anyhow, yeah, Ian Fleming, Chris Blackwell, who is the founder of Island Records, which we all know is uh, Bob Marley, you yeah. 2 Steve Winwood. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. I mean, you know, yeah. one of the greatest
2: record records in the history of music.
3: Chris Blackwell is a Jamaican, English, and his family, his mother was Ian Fleming's girlfriend, and his father was an army captain who died and um, his mother started dating Ian Fleming And through the family He ended up inheriting the uh, GoldenEye estate and, uh, He also Bro. bought Noel Coward's estate, Firefly mm-hmm. which, is, which is, you know, up the street He owns a lot of resorts and hotels throughout the Caribbean But GoldenEye, it's uh, It's awesome, it's like it's own private place There's like a cove And there's like a little James Bond beach And, and then you could watch the James Bond movies in, in the house, which is Ian Fleming's house <laughs> It's Whoa, like yeah. I <laughs> it's it
2: really Sign me
1: cool. up I would yeah, do that. Yeah. I, I would do that on like one of those uh, love you know, you, vacation Chris, getaway Chris Blackwell
3: is a very cool, wonderful, charming, brilliant man, and he's been my mentor in the music business for over 30 years.
2: Because, yeah, it was cool to hear about his influence or his tie-in with uh, Rough House Records, yeah. and I love Bob Marley. My son, at three years old, loves the grooves of Bob Marley, and his influence on rock and roll is tremendous. Oh. And your point about him being the most influential rock icon in the world at one point makes total sense. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, it's funny. He says this all the time. He said it when he got inducted in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He said, people always think that it's because of Bob Marley. Now, Bob Marley, obviously, is the most iconic music personality in the world. He's bigger than Elvis and the Beatles and Michael Jackson because he is all over the
2: world. World. Yes. like Everywhere.
3: Places where white people don't go. Yeah. Right? So, Chris said, "What really, really made Island Records is when he signed Steve Wim. and Steve Winwood." Is Was that one- the Arc
2: of a Diver album? His first on uh, no, Island? No, he
3: no, he had him back in the Blind okay. Faith. Okay, oh, back in the yeah, Blind yeah, yeah, Faith yeah. days. Yeah, yeah, And he said, "When Island Records signed Steve Winwood, that's when all these rock bands only wanted to be on Island, right?" And he told me another great, great. I'll tell you one more Chris Blackwell trivia. He told me that uh, a young artist who made a record for polydor that failed had come to him and wanted to be on island but he was still signed to polydor and he said you know i don't know what to do and chris said go home write 10 of the worst possible songs you can write (laughs) take them (laughs) to polydor and have them pass and then come back and i'll sign cat stevens oh
2: wow that's insane baby baby, it's a wild world Wow. wow wow Pretty interesting.
1: Serendipity. Very Serendipity, much. Yeah. Keeps coming up. Yeah, it I
3: keeps coming up.
1: I want yeah. to ask you something. Because it was such, you'd done so much already. The, the Rough House had been happening in at full stride, you know, in full stride. But when The Miseducation of Lauren Hill comes out, before it comes out, what was your feeling the first time you heard that record done?
3: Oh, I personally thought it was a masterpiece. But as I said earlier in this interview, it's like I think sometimes just because I like it, doesn't mean the civilian population is going to dig it. You know what I mean? That's true. And that's the but one. Well, that's thing... true
2: of anybody. Well, you uses, mentioned Kraftwerk and King to... Crimson in your book, and the civilian population ain't big on either of those two for the yeah, most part. Yeah, I know.
3: Part. But you know, what's funny though. No. Like,
1: but what did King Crimson? Well, what I want to know is, you've known Lauren, you've worked with her, and now you see yeah. her coming to this way other level in her as an artist. Yeah. When you first heard that record, what did Chris Schwartz say?
3: Well, I heard I, I heard bits and pieces of it at a time that came in, and I you know, but by the time I heard the entire thing, I already heard everything on it. Okay. But I'll tell you, the song for me, initially, uh, I remember X Factor. I remember having conversations with her about it, because I thought the verses, like, she does these two really long verses in the beginning. And I said, you know, you really need to cut that in half and have come in with the sing-along and everything. And she goes, no, no, no. Let's just let it go. Right? And it was so weird. It was like, that night, I'm listening. And suddenly it was like, yeah, she's right. Because when she does eventually come in, Mm. Ten years later, in the song, it, it's more impactful, and you've it's been like, waiting for it. Okay. Yeah, and it was and it was really cool, and I was like, I was so glad I didn't try and argue that point. And the other thing is that when I heard "Lost One," because you know I, I had a good idea what the song was about, but at the very last minute, we decided as Roughhouse to put it out as a white label, and we didn't tell Sony. Oh, that's one them. of my favorite parts of the yeah. world. Yeah, that them whole in, story. We didn't want them involved in it. The reason being Creativity. because what we had found was Sony, right, up to this point, and this is going to happen with any major label. That's and true. And this yeah. is just business, and mm. I, I don't take it personally, but it's when I'm hearing from retailers and DJs, well, I'm being told that I have to play this record or I can't get the new Cypress Hill double vinyl set. And it's records that we have nothing to do with, right? Yeah. So it is what it is. But we didn't want that with this, you know? And we sent out, I think, 2,000 copies of this white label. I think 2,000. And God, this shit hit... They could not believe we
2: just... Were they losing their minds?
3: Oh, they were the marketing... black music, they were pissed. And here's the thing. There was a guy named Michael Malden, right? Who was Jermaine Dupri's father, who was a very good friend of mine who became head of the black music department. Right. I felt bad. I felt I felt guilty. I felt like shit that I did this, but I did it, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, he told me, he goes, man, Donnie is about to blow up your phone. In other words, he goes, you don't know how much trouble you're in, right? Mm-hmm. You know what's weird? Donnie never called me.
2: Did you ever talk to Donnie about it?
3: Nope. I'm going to tell you why. Because Kraz called me up. And Proz said that he had heard that people had been blowing up Donnie's office to tell him it's the greatest marketing they ever seen. Yeah. Like oh, but,
0: wow. Yeah,
2: because yeah, yeah. Proz had a big, big thrill for that one. He was psyched for how you handled it. Yeah, yeah. And he thought it was very smart. Did that whole idea sort of come as you were finishing up the album, or did it like, were you, in, were we you, you and it. Lauren Hill record, just like, was, fuck it, done. we're doing it? The
3: record was done. It was, yeah, it was her idea.
2: She's said, brilliant. Fucking,
3: well, I was like, yeah, all right. I love right, Lauren Hill. Yeah, Dale. and huh? it was dope. And it was the thing is it was such a knocking track. You know what I mean? It's like you're doing, it's a a new Miss Lauren Hill record, right? And before this album comes out, you're getting this hip hop track with the whole Jamaican dance hall Feel and like yeah. this whole thing and DJs went nuts over it. It
2: was crazy. It's the spark. But you really? did that not only with Lauren Great. Hill, you also with uh, the Wycliffe solo album, you did the same thing and you battled the label on it. Why were you so adamant about battling the label on both their solo records?
3: Because the Wycliffe record started out. We were in Haiti and uh, we were drinking, Haitians drink this stuff. It's like Kool-Aid. It's really...
2: Deadly. Is it a rum punch type it's of drink? Type yeah. rum type, rum <laughs> it's a rum
3: punch type gig.
2: Rum punch. It's a rum
3: punch type of thing. A
2: moonshine rum. And
3: uh, I, we were sitting at this, you know, they had these beautiful hotels that were built in like the 40s down there that are all dilapidated, but they're still nice, you know? So we're sitting in this like veranda overlooking Port-au-Prince and he starts saying, you know, he goes, I want to do this record that it's going to be like traditional Haitian music, but I'm going to infuse it for a little bit of pop and everything. So that's what it was. And originally this record wasn't going to be on Rough House, right? So we started working on this record, and then it started to become something else. And as I say in the book, he calls me up on a Tuesday with uh, David Sonnenberg, the manager, and says, I'm hiring an 80-piece orchestra. I said, yeah. He goes, (laughs) I said, when do you want to do this? And he goes, Thursday. And I'm like, now I'm meeting with Donnie the next day to play him music from the album, right? And I don't have anything approved. We we got no Mm. budgets or anything. And I go in, I have a meeting with Donnie and I give Donnie the CD. He listens to about 30 seconds of the first four or five songs and he takes it out and he hands it back to me, which is... Never a good thing. Never a good thing. And he says, quote unquote, I don't know. Sounds like something you listen to on vacation. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, maybe this isn't a good time to bring up the breeze orchestra (laughs) (laughs) that we need on Thursday, right? Yeah. But actually, I, I fronted that money out personally we did it and then You know, as we all know, the record Mm
2: -hmm. did really well. It did pretty well for you. It's great that you battled the label and went with your gut on that. And throughout the book, which if you read the book, and I highly recommend, I've read a bunch of books this year, and Rough House is by far my favorite book of 2019 that I've read so far. And it gives you a feel not only for the hip-hop industry, because of your work with Dandelion and you were competing with other labels, you also had some experience in the rock and roll world, and some of your artists crossed over on European tours more with the oh hip hop artists. So that's
1: where we intersect really yes, intersected yes, first in those yeah. and, and I remember playing I, Weird I, Out as a know, new song.
3: Weird Out. Do you know what's crazy? That song's that fucking great. Was a top five modern rock single and what's the uh the rock station in Chicago, the modern rock
2: station It was Q one oh one
3: Q one oh one Played that song 65 times in one week, and it was it got the most plays in one week in history of that station. And they bought them out there, the headline the weenie fest they do in the summer. And I bought them a school bus.
2: That's amazing. Yeah.
3: And so they left late at night, and I don't know what they did, but they showed up late. And when they got there. The lead singer Kevin, God bless him. You know, he said funny. We, we we converse now once in a while online, but back then he didn't like me. I way I, I shouldn't say he didn't like me, but it was like I was the record label. You yes. know what I mean? And you remember what they it was were like back very,
2: then? yeah, they were very it anti-record label, was, was, anti-corporate. But that's what
3: the whole grunge thing. I'm too Nirvana, close to this
1: whole thing to comment much.
3: What <laughs> <But I'll just laughs> <but say> <laughs> I'm talking about? You know, here's the thing. I know shit. Yeah, no, you here, know here, a lot of shit. Here's dude. what I would say Amazing. about those bands back then, though. They act like, oh, you guys just want to sell platinum records. We just want to play clubs. We're not into money, right? Bullshit. they're None of them are into money until it comes time to negotiate and do contracts. Then their socialist yeah. values go right out the window. <laughs> you know oh, what absolutely. I mean? Oh, then absolutely. it's all about the money if they're lawyers, you know? Oh, but anyhow. <laughs> but see, the thing is, I knew
1: these guys when but... they were in uh, JoJo Slick and, and Mama Volume. No, 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 no. How and about And I didn't know that you had about... something about... to do with Mama yeah, yeah, Volume's Mama... demos. No, I didn't no, know no, that. No,
3: no, Mama Volume. Forget I had one uh... there's she males. Oh, they're yeah, sure, sure. The Shemales, no, yeah, I yeah. the Shemales. Oh yeah, I had a bunch of rock bands. Oh yeah, I had a
1: bunch of but, rock. But, bands. And Shemales right. kind of morphed into Mama Volume, and they had a demo. Yeah. We
3: were playing it on rockers. We yeah, were getting well, things I, going, I, uh, and then
2: uh, I uh, was Dandelion. So anti-label that they were self-destructive in that way. No,
3: they're self-destructive because there were key members. Uh, member, I'm going to say member or members because I don't want to identify anybody.
2: Yeah, that's fine. But
3: there was somebody that had a problem that uh, that I also had for years and years and years. And, True. You know,
2: that yes, was, uh, And that you talk was, about your issue in the book you, at yeah, the very beginning. So had, so. Substance
3: abuse problems. And as we all know that if you're in a working, traveling band, it's very hard to go out on the road because you can't it, be away from route the route. familiar sources of
2: where you get your hookups. You know what yeah, I mean? That road life yeah. beats the crap out of you. Yeah. Ray, this is where we pause for a quick break with our good friends from Crooked Eye Brewery right in the heart of Hatboro.
1: Well, you know, Marcus, we talk about the guys at Crooked Eye Brewery so much, we should make them like partners in the podcast.
2: <laughs> and they should make us partners in the brewery. Well, I'd like that because I get to go
1: and drink all the good stuff for free, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you may not get to go and drink for free, but you can go and have a great time anytime you go into Crooked Eye. They're in the heart of Hapro right at York Road and Montgomery Avenue. Stop on in and have uh, anything that's fresh off the board. Uh, there's so many great offerings. Jeff Mulher and the Chief Brewer always work on some neat stuff in the back room. Their new expanded brewing facility, Marcus. We saw it when we did
2: the New Year's Eve party. The facility's great. It's got great sound to record a podcast in, which means... <laughs> but it also makes good beer! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and we, <laughs>
1: if you want to go in with friends and you don't drink beer, they've got uh, wine and cider yep. and all kinds of things, especially in the wintertime. There's always a hearty ale or something that you can quench your thirst with there, a Crooked Eye.
2: You want to find out what's
1: going on entertainment wise? You can go to their website, crookedeyebrewery.com.
2: Good friends, great beer. Next time you need a pint, make it a Crooked Eye right in the heart of Hatboro. <laughs> And we're back with Chris Schwartz, Rough House, Rough Nation Visionary.
3: So that was the reason they imploded. But there was another group. And I'm going to tell you an interesting Rough House trivia fact. There was a group we had called the Goats.
2: I love the Goats. And the Goats
3: had something that, that very few groups have. And what they had was that they had, besides the support of the label, Rough House, they had the full-on support of Sony Music, United States, and Europe. Columbia Records president Don Einer said, this is our rage against the machine. He was so proud and wanted this thing to happen. And the goats got treated like royalty and they went over. And it was so great, but they imploded, right? Same, yeah. same reason, Dandelion. Right. Okay, now, cut to the next years going on. Mm-hmm. The goats received more fan mail from all over the world than Crisscross, Cross, Cypress Hill, wow. Fugees, Lauryn Hill, Wyclef combined.
2: What um,
3: fan mail from eastern block like from the weirdest places You're like how like you know, new know zealand we him, we and it was like we Rockers get we little. get bags of like mail so, so how are they that's hearing crazy about
1: that's what i want to know is like uh, we played a little bit they sold like it.
3: they sold like four hundred thousand records worldwide but so it was like that first album tricks mm-hmm. in the shade then no mm-hmm. ghosts no glory it just struck a chord of a lot of people yeah it was crazy really you know good. we went on a tour with this group called big chief right the goats opening up for big chief so here's what happens go to a show places packed for the goats and then they all leave all the everybody leaves before Big Chief comes on. I get this phone call from these executives up at Columbia who are friends with Big Chief's management mm-hmm. saying, oh, the goats are leaving their equipment on stage and going off to smoke pot. No, they're not. I was out on like five of these shows and they had a road crew on. and everything. That did not happen. You know? And it was like, well, maybe what should happen is maybe the goat should headline and Big Chief should open up and then that way everybody gets what they need.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. That's the rock and roll business. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, you've made a lot of different deals. You, You, you Rough House, obviously, you did things before that and things after that. You came to a crossroads where you ended up working with Warner Brothers and you had the option of either going with DreamWorks or uh, was it EMI? EMI, EMI. First, the pre-question is, how fucking cool was that house when you met David Geff in there?
3: Oh, my God. It was, who's the artist that does the stuff that drips all over the canvas? Pollock. Jackson oh, Pollock. Geez, kind so, of a whole nother so, level. Thank you, Caroline. He bought Jack Warner's estate and right. had it refurbished to the original thing. So Like the bathroom doors look like it has those like that accordion wood, like they're uh, like, a, like a safe, you know. The downstairs, this is the middle of Beverly Hills, but you have these big floor to ceiling windows and you're looking out and you just see like you're in some vast expanse of parkland, you know. We're sitting there eating and I'm just looking over this like bar this thing in this room and I'm looking and there's two huge Jackson Pollocks hanging there and you know they're Jackson Pollocks you don't even have to ask right (laughs) and then I'm starting to notice so after we have the lunch he takes me on a tour of the house like everything up through all the hallways and everything and the guy's got hundreds of millions of dollars worth of art in this house like half a billion
2: or something
3: and here's the thing that I found out later on he doesn't live there he lives it was in the book he he has a little house out in Malibu and he uses this house for meetings and parties and stuff and it's like okay I get it you know but anyhow yeah but the thing is meeting him was really cool because Mm -hmm. let's face it the guy starts out in the mailroom at William Morris becomes Laura Nero's manager but then goes on to forge a rock and roll dynasty if you read books like The Mansion on the Hill and stuff like that without him there'd be no Eagles there'd be no Jackson Brown there'd Mm -hmm. be no Crosby stills and Nash you know it's like you just look at everything he's done like like Chris Blackwell you know what I mean and you one can't of the great help.
1: facilitators of artists in our time.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. You can't help but, and I'm just sitting there like, gall gag But, uh, you
1: know, at that time, though, you met with Geffen, and you met with EMI, and then you end up going with Warner Brothers. For, that was for Rough Nation, right? Yeah. And, and uh, I now, did- And, and, I, I, and now, I, Russ Thyrette, I a great record yeah. man and all that, but uh, the politics of the label change and Russ leaves shortly thereafter. Yeah, Did it you ever sucked. think maybe you should have gone one of the other yeah, ways? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Absolutely. I, I thought maybe I should have gone. Because here's the one thing David told me about DreamWorks. He said, I won't let it fail, meaning yeah. that he goes- and let's face it, David Geffen was indisputably, and probably still is, probably the wealthiest person in the history of music. I mean, yeah, he's he's got more money than Paul McCartney, you know, Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. the guy, you know, we know that, how, yeah. how wealthy this guy is, right? Yeah, he's sure. insanely so, wealthy. But the thing is, with Warner Brothers, it was more of a sentimental thing because I wanted to do something important. What I wanted to do was that at the time, if you looked at Warner Brothers, what was their legacy in black music? It was Prince mm-hmm. and ice tea, right? And if you want, maybe cold, chilling records, but who gets a shit, right? But that was it. And I wanted to be the guy, because let's say, Warner Brothers and Disney at the time were the last great American-owned entertainment mm-hmm. conglomerates. Right. And the fact that Warner Brothers was a fully American-owned entertainment conglomerate that did not have black music, did that- You know what That I mean? makes no sense. And I thought, I want to be that guy. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to go and infuse the roughhouse DNA into this infrastructure into and the create this hush. thing. But the thing is, there was just a lot- working against us and I did not realize at the time because the thing is I'm thinking they're a major distribution power right Right. so that's all that they need to be but it's when you're at Sony in New York Right. That's like you're in the Yankee. And when I went to Warner's, it was like the equivalent of going to a AAA farm team. At the time, let's look at for what they were. Right. they an were an antiquated related to the music Coast Coast and the culture you're FM dealing with. Yep. Rock rock label. Right. Yep. Right. And the biggest things that they had going on was Eric Clapton, The Peppers, and Travis Tritt. You know what I mean? That's what Warner's was. You know, besides their massive catalog. So Everything Especially there, that. you could not do anything spontaneous like you could at Sony. Oh no, you'd need to you should ask for that fourteen weeks ago and they the way wow. they marketed everything was just so antiquated you know mm. what i mean and then the worst part of it was when they did the aol merger which drove the stock down which caused an uproar and then that pebble that hit the pond in new york caused a tsunami in burbank you know and it was bad really? it was like then it got to the point where i you know here's the thing i did five million dollars in billing in the first nine months i was there right what i should have done and I talk about this in a lot of interviews. What I should have done was the artists that I put out through Warner Bros, like Major Figures and No Question and other stuff, I should have put it all through because I had an independent deal also with their ADA, their independent distribution. Right. I did an Outsiders record through them and it was Eminem's first ever recorded thing with the Outsiders, yeah. right? And I sold 400,000 records through ADA without even doing anything, right? I should put everything through that. Right. I could have been like the Viet Cong. You know what I mean? Like hiding <laughs> while, 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 while all this shit was going on, yeah. you know? Right, right. And I could like, they would never <laughs> wait, even notice wait, wait, me, you know? Right, waiting for everything to pass, and they yeah. just
1: come out. That you mentioned earlier uh, when we were talking, Chris, we're talking with Chris Schwartz from Rough House, Rough Nation here on the uh, yes, balance Nation. You mentioned, and I can't believe it's taken me this long to get back to the cars. You have a thing about cars. How many do you still have? Now? Yeah.
3: Just regular just one or two. One or two? Yeah. Do you still you have your rolls? cars? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. Yeah, one that, night, one night it took thing, us that... out on
1: the town. We were in that was you was had it, had a redone. It was the black Rolls? with I think with red interior. Yeah. Was, was that British. the Rolls? Oh British, my yeah. God, that car was beautiful. I and it had a great sound system in it. And it. We were work, listening sure. to sure. the, the new Urge Overkill record. Was brand new. It was just finished.
2: Uh, we were out to that. I remember when that album was else new. That was
1: getting ready to come out on on House too. But I remember that. And but so so the car collection, the old Mercedes, everything all gone.
3: You know, my wife tends to take a dim view of stuff like that. Nowadays (laughs) You know, it's just like, you know, I have an 18 year old daughter that's uh, going to school over in Germany. Yeah. And that's more of a priority. I understand. You know, heating oil and, you know, like, and like somehow that. somehow yeah. the car fetish doesn't seem to fit in with the yeah, blood. Yeah. The, Fair uh, enough. You know. but they held their value.
2: You mentioned yeah. your wife. You've taken her through some pretty big storms. How did the two of you survive all of the maelstrom that happened in your life? I
3: had to get back to you on that. I don't know if it's over. <laughs> <laughs> she grew up in a very similar
2: socioeconomic
3: situation as me. She was a pretty tough chick, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. she's from the south, and her father had kind of—I would say—he he, he kind of left them when they were kids, and left the mother to you know social services that tried to take them away a couple times. And Ooh. the mother started stocking shelves for Keebler, and then became now she retired as a major Keebler executive and stuff. Oh, but wow. you know she went through a lot of rough stuff growing up. You know,
2: so you both had those similar. Yeah. So you had that in common. Yeah.
1: And I wanted to talk about that too, not to dwell on it much, but a lot of times in life we have things that challenge us and yeah. a lot of times when it comes to physical abuse from your childhood it has to do with a parent or or an adult relative. Yeah. You start right out of the gate in your book with the story of you with your older brothers and they're brutalizing yeah. beating of the, the fuck of, out the, of, out of you. Because uh, there was a lot of kids, right? How many? It uh. was, it ten? Was ten kids. Because and you were in the second half. Yeah. Because, and you got the shit kicked out of yeah. you. And not just in the way that brothers will
3: fight. This right. was
1: like Ooh. Nah,
3: it was it was bad. It's funny because for years and years and years I've been trying to pick it apart and figure it out. And then you realize it's because it was really two separate families in a way, you know, because mm-hmm. there was a huge gap of time between the two sets of five kids each, right? And you know, my father was on the road all the time. My mother was an alcoholic who was constantly institutionalized and everything. So our house had that kind of Lord of the Flies dynamic, where the elder kids, a couple of the older brothers, decided, you know, let's—I'm going to take advantage of the situation. And well, beyond, listen, yeah. that's what yeah.
2: happened. Yeah, I we almost cried beyond. a couple times at I, the beginning I, I, of that. It, boy. It
1: was, I, I never knew this, and uh, I to commend you as your friend and as a writer who's telling you your story, so that other people. Because we always talk about the parental abuse, we don't often focus on the sibling oh, on sibling abuse I, that's out there, and it's I, a lot worse. I, I think, had than no. People you know, realize. it's
3: funny. I used to think I was the only person like this was some really special, unique situation. Yeah. And then, like one day, just I went online to look up sibling, and I was like, Oh my god, this is like a thing. But really? you know there's a huge is? communities on, but, online. But I'm thing, sure. All, but nobody nobody really talks about that's it a right. lot. And, you know, and I'll tell you this, you know, since I've written a book, there's people in my family who weren't abusers who aren't talking to me because they're just upset that I bought out this. But, you know, like to me, it's like, OK, you want to be a Holocaust denier? That's on you. You know, yeah. I don't care anymore. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. But um, <laughs> it was one of those things. It's a scenario set. The reason I wrote about it is because I felt like, how can I tell this story and leave that out. I didn't know how to do it.
2: It's part of who you are yeah, and who you and, became. Yeah.
3: So and it also
1: prepared you for that opening moment in the book, which I won't talk about because did, people got yeah, to read it. You got to read the book. It's a great read, and you really didn't get into all like the dirty details and down into the like like you said, you know, the there, war room another stuff. Another hundred pages or or yeah. so that you know that people really might not have been really that. Well, I just find like, to
3: read. I feel well. I feel like sometimes in order for a narrative to make sense, you have to characters have to have backstory. And Mm -hmm. a lot of backstory got cut out just because it was about the pacing of the book. And they wanted music moments, music moments, music moments, so that's what I gave.
1: One of the people we haven't talked about with that you worked with was Nas. What did you see on the uh, Live at the Barbecue tape? What did you see in him from that that made you have the vision to see the he Dope delivery. Could
3: be- you could tell he was young and his metaphors, everything he was talking about were far beyond his years. And then when I met him, I was like, oh my God, this really is a young kid. <laughs> like, Which
1: gave him a chance to have a long career in the game. But
3: it's funny, if you
1: listen to him
3: and his... He has a song called Sign of the Times. It was on like two albums ago. And he talks about me in the song, but in the song, he talks about his story and every label passed on him and columbia didn't want to sign him right so they told at search they said if you want to sign it take it to roughhouse if they want to do it we'll back it because they knew if the record failed we'd end up paying for it out of our pipeline revenue.
1: right out of so, your end yeah, yeah
3: so and i made the mistake of giving the five songs to the guys from the source and the guys from the source called up donnie the president of columbia and said oh we're putting them on the cover this shit's gonna blow up and then columbia wanted them back I understand
1: what that means, like, from a personal and business standpoint. Did it feel good to know that Rough House had finally gotten Big Red to loosen up a little bit and let the true spirit of
3: hip hop in? No. What it felt like was that I felt like out of a sense of obligation that we had to allow them to buy us out of Nas's record when we didn't want to do this, but... At the time, and I've talked about this before, in the first four years of being with Sony, with Columbia, CBS, and eventually Sony, I was the wimpy kid there. I was easily talked into shit because when I got that deal, when we when we got that deal with Sony, that was a big event in my yeah. life. And everybody
1: around you too, yeah. all the people you were
3: working with. Yeah, and it was like, everybody could not believe it. It's like, these schlubs got a deal with Sony <laughs> Music, right? And we didn't have any hit records or anything. You know, we had no, we, matter of fact, we didn't even have any artists. They gave us a deal based on Joey and I, me, me, a promoter, Joey, a mixer, and school, we, school ED and everything like that. But we did not actually have a record label. Label.
1: That's crazy, right? You we, built it though, bro.
3: Yeah, we did it. But the thing is, man, it's like I didn't want to upset the status quo. I was like, you know, this is the big red machine. This is CBS. Wipe your feet at the door. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, recess lady. Show some and, fucking you know, respect, Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know how powerful I was. I was a Twinkie that couldn't taste myself. You know, I didn't know. <laughs> at
1: the beginning, once you get things all established, though, you find these kids crisscross they become huge yeah now, that story is crazy i heard the story of when they, the day they were finishing up the song jump where like everybody from the office came out into the studio to
3: yeah, do that yeah we the, all we all said you on there? Yeah, were you yeah, in yeah, there that's all, too mm-hmm. that's yeah. all that's all everybody from Ralph Hansen studio 4 in the studio yelling jump jump we all yell warm it up chris too on the warm it up chris song.
2: i remember when and they and were a few were months news. later it's well, on every radio station in yep. the world
3: okay i tell you this there was a time where I could find Jump playing on the radio anytime I wanted, all I'd do is turn on the radio and flip it to three different stations, and it would be playing.
2: That's crazy.
3: I was at the uh, the Sam Goody in um I know what was the place in the, uh, in Ardmore in the little strip mall there, the record. Store? Mads. No. In Ardmore. Was it Sam Goody? It was Sam. It, it was Sam Goody. Sam Goody. I remember going in there, and there's two hundred crisscross cassettes, right? Hmm. And this kid is like 12, 13. He's looking, he's walking down, and he sees the crisscross cassettes and he goes, Shh! like, he grabbed it as though there was a thousand people around him. And only five left, right? No, yeah. but there was 200 of them. <laughs> but the way he grabbed it, it, it was, was like, like, I found it. He was like, it was like, <laughs> so he was like, wow, man. Like, he grabbed that thing like, like, like somebody was going to get it for him.
1: It created that kind of a sensation. Yeah. And that, that sparked a lot of things and created a lot of that ball moving forward that created the ceremony. Of finding yeah. different artists and partners yeah. in crime along the way Many of your partners in crime from roughhouse days are still my friends all these years later It's crazy and it's, you know It's the it's bonds funny. that uh, I just tie found us together
3: There was a nice girl who worked for me named Lon Ray who's now the general manager, senior vice president of art at Warner Brothers. Rob Dippold's a partner in um, Primary Wave.
2: Oh, cool. Oh. Yeah,
3: I mean, this like a lot of people that work for Rough House went out and got these amazing big jobs. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you guys shook shit up, so yeah, yeah, they yeah. like that about yeah. you guys. You mentioned throughout the book many times that you're a reader. What are your favorite books of all time? My favorite,
3: favorite book ever that I ever, ever, ever read was probably, well, the first book I ever read when I was in first grade was Charlotte's Web, which I I loved. Uh Um, But Probably, I read a series of books when I was in fifth grade. I read a book by a guy named Claude Brown called Man Child in the Promised Land. It was about a guy who was a young African-American gang member in New York in the 50s and uh, everything his gang did. But then there was a bunch of other books that inspired certain movies like about gangs like the Mau Mau's and everything up in New York. So there was a lot of books like that that I read. And then I became, I guess in the early, probably right around the early 80s, I became a true crime nut and at one point I had over a thousand true kind paperbacks
2: holy cow wow. yeah.
3: I was like I would go to airports and anything that with like a photo on the front I would just grab it I've actually grabbed <laughs> books I've already read you know it was like um, a different yeah. cover right?
1: yeah. <laughs> hey but look reading is something that opens all kinds of doors for us and it's cool that somebody who's such an avid reader should become a writer especially yeah. with such a great story to tell Man,
3: right now I'm working on a new book it's called Rebels and Poets to Kingpins and Mogul. It's more about how the major distribution powers colonized the hip-hop industry in the late 80s, you know, the whole thing, and what he had done to the artists and the mm-hmm. label owners and mm-hmm. stuff. And then as far as you know, the company, I've got some very cool new acts that I'm working with. I got a group of kids from New Jersey called No Facade. And even though they're all between the ages of 18 and 20, They've been together for seven years. Because wow. They, it was two cliques that went to two different middle schools right. that all wrapped together, and they all came together in the joint high school. Oh. You know? I have a singer, a young lady by the name of Kenya Vaughn. She's from Norristown. Just an amazing, amazing talent. I've got a couple local Philly artists, uh, Del P. And I'm sure you see his stuff all over Instagram. It's another voted best unsigned R&B singer in Philly last year. Uh, Jay well, cool. So you're keeping busy. And now I'm the question new, is, what, do you, ED record.
1: what is it going to take for him? What's the next thing? Label? Manager?
3: No... I have a kind of like a hybrid platform that I'm in the midst of discussions about with different label entities. I have meetings up in New York on Thursday. And I can't really get too much into it. It's just that it's something I don't think anybody's really doing. And I think it's going to be very cool. We'll we'll watch
1: the funny papers and find out what's what's (laughs) the next step for Chris papers. Can't thank you enough for coming in. We talked about this uh, when we started the podcast. And here you are. This is the first podcast of 2020, our first podcast Oh, of wow, the new right. year and our second year as the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. But thanks so much for yeah. coming Very excited in, brother. to hear it.
3: Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Marcus, thank you.
2: Oh, this was awesome. Yes. This was really fun. I like the historical aspect of this a lot. It's so fun to see how these pieces that we see in the public get put together with all the craziness and all of the maelstrom and all of the insanity and all of the chance and the luck and the timing that all go into it, it's along people- with creativity you
3: have to align the stars and the thing yeah. is anytime you're involved in anything that's in a human endeavor when you're responsible for somebody who is in a creative space who's an artist and everything like that it's hard it yeah. really is mm-hmm. and i'll tell you i've had look you know I've had to drop people, right? But they end up living in my guest house (laughs) for a year and a half. And it's, you know, it is what it is. But again, you know, sometimes you get caught in that traffic jam at the intersection of art and commerce and, you know, you do your best. That's all you can do is do your best and try and make everybody happy and, you know, hopefully put out good music so thank you guys well thank you thanks buddy
1: give us your feedback if there's anything we got right or anything more you think we should know about what we're talking about with chris chuck d all you got to do is hit us up at imbalanced history at gmail.com that's a good way to get a hold of us anytime
2: or you can check us out on facebook imbalanced history of rock and roll or twitter as well, Imbalanced Histo. After that, I think we're a little parched and might need a pint.
1: Well, we have to thank our friends at Crooked Eye because, you know, they've got the cure for what ails you since 2014, and they sponsor the Imbalanced podcast. That's going to wrap it up on part two with Chris
2: Schwartz. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. On the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.
3: time to let it roll the podcast about how and why popular music happens we're heading into 2020 and it's never been easier to hear music old new local international but has it ever been harder to make sense of popular music is this golden age of ubiquity producing great new music how long will our uber access to everything ever recorded last how did the 20th century produce so much great popular music is there any chance the 21st century will match it I'm Nate Wilcox, and I'm obsessed with trying to figure out what the heck happened with popular music in the last 170 years and where we might be headed. Join me as I talk to some of the best music historians on earth people like Ed Ward, Robert Christgau, Stanley Booth, Ted Gioia, Elijah Wald, Susan Whitehall, and Peter Doggett to get the history, the theory, and try to figure out how popular music happens on a Let It Roll podcast.